Well, it's good to be um, going back into Galatians now, um, looking forward to handling the rest of chapter 2 in the days ahead, and then continue on through the book. We have arrived at a passage that is probably one of the most familiar out of Galatians to us in our reading or in a gospel presentation uh, to us at some point in our life's history, or special verses that we have indeed memorized. Um, But also along with these texts, there is no small amount of controversy regarding the issues of justification and the central question of the immaterial righteousness. How is a man or a woman, a human being, to consider themselves uh, assured of right standing with God? Um, Of course, if we consider church history, that question uh, is of no small controversy throughout the history of the church, and it remains such. So it's important that we've arrived at such a passage, and we'll spend a little bit of time here working on these concepts of answering the most pressing questions, indeed, that our conscience, even as believers, plague us. A question of our immaterial soul, the standing of God's verdict. Uh, We look at our own works, and whether it's described as behaviors or pathologies or attitudes, we look at all of these things in our own lives that we see come out of us, and they're concerning. Um, Even to the most upright and virtuous among us, um, what otherwise we would label as godly, um, there are behaviors, attitudes, actions, words, imaginations that spring forth from our hearts and are manifest in our lives that are troublesome to all of us. That then, if not fed by the word of God and combated through the word of God and the administration of the sacraments, whereby we are aided in the fight against sin and its sense of self-destruction, we grow nearly despondent or depressed. Considering this question, am I saved? How do I know that I am? Where is the assurance? The question that then continues along those same lines is, where do I look for assurance? Um, And and then the examination, it's kind of like a feedback loop. You you look to self again to kind of find some ground for assurance. Then you feedback loop to, that can't be right. I must be saved. You swoop back to that same feedback loop, and then you're like, wait, what about my fruits? And then you swoop back to, well, maybe not. There's not a lot of fruit there. Sweep back to, let me reexamine for some fruit. Wait, that's not the ground. Wait, that, and we lose our way. These are important texts for us to ground ourselves in the thought of what it means to be, indeed, a Christian. Where does our confidence lie? Just a little note for you as we jump into the text of verse 15, where Paul then kind of, if you, in your English text, there's a break there. There's probably like a double or a triple um, space mark that jumps down to verse 15, beginning in chapter 2. And that's across most English texts. The idea of the breaks, and we, we were, uh, we've been out of Galatians for two or three weeks now, but you recall we were discussing Peter's withdrawal from the Gentiles. That's the text that began in verse 11 that we looked at a few weeks ago. And now you see this double or triple space down to verse 15. Um, what's going on? I just want to be clear. The break in the English text indicates what most believe to be Paul now speaking more broadly or more generally, rather than directly addressing Peter still in the continuation of his confrontation verse 11. In other words, look at the text with me just briefly. Verse 11, uh, Paul uses an expression or an illustration or an example of his standing for the gospel. He said, but when Cephas came to Antioch, that is, Peter came to Antioch, 
Um, He gives us this example. I opposed him to his face. Now we jump in, and he goes through the analogy of Peter's wrongful actions. Now we jump into verse 15, where Paul is going to begin to speak more broadly. So just we understand, he's not still somewhat stripping Peter down publicly in the text that we're in this morning. What was Peter's problem in the first place? Well, again, Peter's mistake, it's been a few weeks, but I want to remind you, because it's no small mistake, Peter's mistake was to withdraw from his Gentile brothers and sisters in the presence of Jewish visitors. What happened when they arrived, Peter, as you recall, I made an illustration in my own mind of picking up his lunch tray and moving tables. When Paul witnessed this behavior taking place in Peter, he saw it as Paul witnessed this behavior. He saw it as disastrous to the cause of the gospel. And again, we might think, well, that seems extreme. To to simply move tables or to get up from this group and join this group because another group arrived. Maybe there's some other condition or force at play. Paul witnessed it, and to him it was an immediate disaster that Peter got up and moved. It was not a small thing at all. In fact, if you look at the text just briefly, you'll notice what he says about his conduct. Verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct, and that's the other piece, as we recall, the hypocrisy of how our own sin affects those around us. Barnabas was drawn away into it. He's like, ooh, uh, maybe I should join Peter. He follows his example. And Paul witnesses this behavior in verse 14. He speaks of the conduct. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, it was false conduct. It was lying. It was hypocrisy. I said to Cephas before everybody, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you then force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Again, how is his conduct not inscribed with the truth of the gospel? How so? Well, his actions, by his actions, Peter is communicating the grace of God in Christ is not enough. It's not enough. We're sitting here at the table, and I receive you and you receive me based upon our shared confession of faith that rests in Christ alone. That's what we're eating over. That's what we're communing together over. And I get up as soon as a third party walks in and is like, they might hear that. I'm going to move over here and sit at the approved table. To those left sitting there, how are they doing the math? They're thinking, wait a minute. I thought we were your brothers in union, through a shared deposit of faith that rests in Christ alone. Is there a class distinction between us and between us and the Lord? Paul is saying, that is anti-gospel. His actions suggested to those at the table, and it affirmed perhaps the suspicions of those who arrived, that certain actions must be taken Lawful observances need to be obeyed in order to be mm, truly Christian. That there's a category somewhere where someone is kind of, sort of Christian and another who is truly Christian. Maybe one who is externally associated with the church merely by saying something, but the rest of us, the insiders, are truly united to the church 
by our doing. Again, notice clearly, again, his confession had not changed, you recall. And that's important for each of us to remember. It's not that Peter here verbalized something different, that he verbalized something opposite of the apostolic gospel. He didn't stand up and give a sermon to those at the table, that they all had it wrong. But due to his fear of men, the burden that we all bear, his behavior had changed. And what of his behavior? Paul sees it as undermining the integrity of his own confession. It's one of those things that your parents tell you, um, maybe coaches tell you, those who are older and mentoring in your life have told you for years. You know it very well. Actions speak louder than words. It's one of those moments about your ethics. That, that, that performance, that doing, that living does testify to some degree of the integrity of what you profess or confess with your mouth. Those two things cannot be wholly separated out. That the ethics that you live with, it calls into question, what is the role of works in the Christian experience? Is it for justification? Do we work? Do we strive in order to be received? If we say no, then we have to ask another question, then what of the role of works in the Christian experience? What of our fruits? What are they for? To what end or for what purpose? If we don't look to them for our assurance, what do we look to them for? What do we find here in Galatians to remind us about the role of works? They're to be seen by others, to glorify God. Indeed, to confirm to others the integrity of our confession. We're Christian people. That's our confession. And then they see it in our actions as we live according to that confession. Fruits in the Christian experience are a blessing unto others. But they aren't the grounds for our acceptance before God. This is important that we know that. This is what Paul will address as we jump into verse 15. Paul addresses the issue as you look at it with me just for a moment as we begin the argument of verse 15 that Paul addresses the issue of justification more broadly. And again, the issue with Peter now, kind of if, if you were there in your mind um, and, and Paul is, is speaking this to you and he just told you that story, he's using that analogy, that experience that he had with Peter and it, it plays a role in verse 15. But as he begins, Peter's story was like this, you could say, And now it's kind of like as Paul emerges into verse 15 and starts talking to the rest of us, that story about Peter is starting to slowly but surely kind of fade. Now it's connected. It's not total full stop and start again. But we're not now watching Paul speak to Peter. It's as if he's speaking this way, and this is what I did in this scenario. And then he turns to you and begins speaking more broadly. What does he have to share with us? Well, he addresses the issue of justification more broadly, speaking how, speaking to all of us in this moment, to those at Galatia in this text as a Jewish Christian. Notice how he begins his argument. 
This is very important. Notice the very beginning of his argument uh, starts with we. You notice in verse 15, I'll simply read the first statement of the text, and then we'll explore it just for a few moments together. We ourselves. So remember, he, he ends this story with Peter, and he turns, and then he speaks more broadly and says, we ourselves are Jews. We are Jews by birth. Now, why is this important to the overall argument of what he's about to lay down and how he spoke to Peter just for a moment? Notice, I want you to be able to see from the text, Paul is here affirming the value of Jewish birth and descent. He's going to affirm the value of that. Think about it just for a moment if you read several places in the text, and I have a few citations to give to you. But Paul here, and I want you to understand because this is so critical in the role of justification, the argument between Gentiles and Jews in, 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 in harmony through faith. The issue is Paul is here affirming the value of Jewish descent and Jewish birth. By birth. Is, is, is that something he's shying away from or something that where he's being embarrassed by it? He, he's appealing upon it. We ourselves are Jews by birth. By birth, Jews possessed a certain external righteousness in relationship to the law. And I want to be careful there. Hear me very carefully. External. And I'll make more of the argument as we go forward. But the Jews possess a certain external rightness to the law. Think of it. They possessed the sign of circumcision. That was no small piece. They possessed Moses in the giving of the law in the oracles of God. They possessed the fathers, Isaac and Jacob. They possessed all of these things as the people of God, not by choice or by conversion unto these things, but they possessed them by God's sovereign mercy. We ourselves are Jews by birth. Paul is expressing something very important here in the overall argument to convert Jews to the gospel. That being God's covenant people was indeed native to us. Now, that's, again, it's important as he moves forward when he will compel them to be converted. He's arguing from a place of Jewishness that indeed we were God's covenant people natively. This positive affirmation is similar to what he says in Romans 3. I won't have you turn there. I just want to cite for you the text that indeed Jewishness is not something of a disadvantage as Paul sees it, but he is arguing for its affirmations. In Romans 3, he says this, what advantage has the Jew? Maybe one would ask. Because once you go through Romans 1 and then you jump through Romans 2, maybe you indeed would ask, well, then what advantage does the Jew possess? So Paul rhetorically asks, what advantage has the Jew? Or, or, or what is the value of circumcision? What is its value then? And he says this, much in every way. Then he continues, to begin with. Now, again, that's not the sum total, but to begin with, let me gesture in a direction. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. That's no small piece of redemptive history. 
It's not something that uh, is of no weight or measure. You see, the Jewish people have always possessed certain covenantal advantages which have enabled them to be nearer to God. And, 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 and now, now think of what that might ring in, in, in the argument here, in, in the ears of the individual hearing the argument. They're thinking, exactly. Exactly. Whoa, 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 where are your assumptions going? We belong to God. And God belongs to us. Therefore, the appeal to repent and believe. It's a non-starter. Remember, you yourself just rehearsed the history. We belong to God. And he belongs to us. Is that what Paul is affirming? You see, think of it just for a moment. God, and this is important for us as we come to the table this morning or as you sit under the preaching of the word on Lord's Day, we would all, I hope, confess, indeed, God is known through means. He is made known to us through the preaching of the word. He is made known to us and renewed to us through the sacraments, that of baptism and his table. God is known, not in the abstract, but he is known through the appointed means through his word, the administration of his sacraments, prayer, and discipline. And the Jews, think of it, as Paul says, they indeed possess those means for millennia. And by those means, they had access to a knowledge of God. Then further, as you look at the text, look, as he says, by comparison or by contrast. Notice the, what's in contrast to this privileged covenantal condition. They, he, 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 he joins with them. We ourselves, that, that, that would be at least, if, if the we there would be at least Paul, for sure, and as he's speaking of it, perhaps then uh, Peter as well, as he's considering it, as he's building off the story. We ourselves are Jews by birth, and by comparison, what that then means is we are not Gentile sinners. There's a distinction to be made, one of privilege. Now, just consider just for a moment what he means by Gentile sinners. This is not a subset of certain Gentiles more broadly. It's not like he's saying, you know, we're not like Gentiles, Gentile sinners, you know, the bad ones. He's not making a subset of Gentiles altogether. Rather, he is speaking more broadly He is speaking of a reference to all non-Jewish individuals. Upon what terms? To say, so so we ourselves are Jews by birth, and and what that means, and all the privileges that come with it. And maybe you ask, what privileges are there? Well, there's much in every way. What do you mean? To begin with, we were entrusted with the oracles of God. We are these people. And as these people, we are not those people. Which people? Gentile people. Of what type? All Gentiles. Of what condition are all Gentiles in? Sinners. In relation to what? God. How is God to be known? Through his law. We are not them. We are not, Paul simply saying, we are not Gentile sinners who live apart from the law 
of God. If you're in Galatians, I hope you are Galatians 2. You can flip over just a couple of pages over to Ephesians chapter 2. If you would, just for a moment, to let me read for you this text that, uh, once again, is a similar argument that Paul is making, and it's important for us to connect these dots. It's a very important piece to his overall argument that he's going to make here as he sets Christ forth, not just for Jews and not just for Gentiles, but for all men. He's not denying Jewishness in order to get there. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. He's making a very similar argument. Therefore remember, I'll begin in verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh. What's that condition? Well, he'll describe it in a moment. But remember, he already said in Galatians 2, for this argument, sinners. Therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, call to mind, that you were at that time in what state or condition in relation to God? You were separated from Christ. This is what Paul said. But we're not these Gentile sinners. What, what, what do the Gentile sinners look like? Paul says elsewhere, they're separated from Christ. How so? They're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were not covenantal members. Further, what do we mean categorically? What, what, what do we mean to say of the Gentiles? They're strangers. They're strangers to what? The covenants of promise. You see, it, but we ourselves are Jews by birth. And what that also means with its privilege is it means that we're not strangers. We're not aliens. We're not outside the covenants of promise. And he says, furthermore, they have no hope and without God in the world. And then he speaks similarly to the way he's going to speak of justification here in Galatians 2. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, that is, those who were separated, those who were alienated, those who were strangers to covenants, those who had no hope, you have been brought near. You're no longer a stranger. You're no longer outside the commonwealth. You're, you're no longer separated. You're no longer outside covenant promise. You're no longer those who are outside and have no hope, but you have been brought near. And the means by which you have been brought near and possess the covenant promises and possess the commonwealth inheritance is by the blood of Christ. Back in Galatians. Paul's making the same argument. He remains firm to those in Galatia that while being Jewish is a wonderful benefit, historically, speaking of redemptive history, being Jewish indeed is a wonderful benefit. The covenants, the promises, the fathers, the oracles of God, the commandments, Moses, the tabernacle, worship. Ethnicity 
has never been and will never be a saving category. That's an important piece whether we're speaking Jew and Gentile relationships or whether we're speaking of race categories today and the highly charged society within which we live. As Christians, how do we maneuver such space? How do we think about the proclamation of the good news in a fractured society along race and ethnocentricity or ethnic exclusions or constant rhetoric, whether it's all actually real or not? How do we maneuver such space as believers? One place we must acknowledge, one piece we must understand as though indeed there may be wonderful benefit to this or to that, and joy and inheritance and people and place, we must be keen. Ethnicity has never been and will never be a saving category. One cannot appeal upon race, or if we say ethnicity, inheritance as a grounds for his justification. Romans 2, Paul says something similar to the same argument, and I want to draw your attention to it. You don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll, I'll read it for you, but if you track along with me the argument at work in Romans 2. If you want to cite it, it's Romans 2, 28 and 29. I'll read it for you, and I'll try to uh, make plain the logic of the text, and, and then you can weigh that out. But my argument is Paul's making the same argument in Romans 2, which led to the text I read for you earlier in Romans 3. Listen to Romans 2.28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. And you're thinking, well, wait a minute. Yeah, Yeah, they are. We're not doing away with actual physical categories. Wait, listen, Paul's saying, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. You notice the distinction there. He's creating another category. There is indeed a way to experience the fullness of Jewishness. But, but, but it's not in the simplicity of physicality. That is, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Then he argues further. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. And you're like, oh, I'm pretty sure it is. I think it's very outward. I think it's very physical. Ask the man who was circumcised. He'll tell you it was physical. So you're thinking, well, how are we supposed to understand that? No, please understand. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Okay, okay, then, then what are you getting at? But a Jew is one inwardly. Oh, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. That, that's interesting, too, uh, for our understanding of what it means, uh, what circumcision meant all along. When we go back to physical circumcision, what does it point to and what was its purpose? As a sign 
circumcision is a matter of the heart. This circumcision is done, Paul says, by the Spirit. And if it's done by the Spirit, it cannot be done by the letter. Do you see what his argument is? The the, the letter, that is legislation, statement, cannot transform the internal man by his performing it. That inwardness, that immaterial righteousness cannot be achieved by the external pursuit through the letter. The spirit alone can conduct said righteousness in the immaterial man. The outward man can ascend through the letter. He can pursue various acts, whether it's liberal agenda, like we're all saved by recycling, or if it's over here and it's a conservative agenda, we're all saved by church attendance. However you want to go, in any radar you want to be on, there's a way for our external abilities to ascend that legislation to achieve that level of righteousness. There is a way and a means. There is a method and a sermon to be preached. There is a hill that I can point you to to ascend no matter what my agenda is with you. And Paul's saying, but, but, but in the immaterial man, it will return void in the immaterial part. And I want to conclude, conclude with you how he makes that final argument at the end of verse 29. Because for the man who has experienced the, the immaterial self-renewal by the spirit, not by pursuit of the letter through the flesh, but, but by the spirit through the heart, the immaterial man has been converted. He makes this statement about him. His praise, this man's praise, is not from man. That is, it's not from fellow Jews for being Jewish. His praise is not from man but from God. His point being, God's verdict is the only verdict that matters. So high-fiving one another over ethnicity, or high-fiving one another over race, is like a return verdict. I justify you and you justify me. My praise comes from you and your praise comes from me. And Paul's saying that is of no accord in the realm of justification. Uh, 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 The justification that matters is a praise and an announcement that comes from God. Not, contrastly, not from a fellow human being. You see, the righteousness that each person needs is what I'm trying to get at. And then I'll conclude with you the logic of the text. The righteousness that each person needs. That is... I'm making the argument that Paul is making the argument that the righteousness that each and every one of you, each and every one of us in this room, all men and women everywhere in a universal sense, the righteousness that each person needs to possess is a righteousness that resides within the immaterial man. You do believe that. I mean, you know this. I mean, naturalism has never satisfied uh, the, the, the more philosophical souls in the world. And it doesn't satisfy even the least philosophical among us. Naturalism won't get you there. It, it just can't assuage the conscious of the immaterial, I will live on knowledge. It won't. You know you'll live on. The most ardent that say, no, I won't. I don't believe in that. I am a vapor. I'm gone. They don't believe that. You don't believe that. 
So the issue is, okay, let's say that naturalism is now waning because it just isn't answering the questions of the hereafter. It just can't. And then uh, poor models of Christianity and, and poor exposition and, 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 and a lack of helpfulness overall ha- has hurt, and now the Christian, Christian testimony is waning of the hereafter. What verdict will we turn to to find out what happens to our immaterial selves? Because the question will never go away. The Bible's concern, Paul's concern, is to help the Jews, help the Gentiles, help each and every one of us understand that the immaterial man lives on and that he needs righteousness. She needs righteousness. She needs a verdict to, to, to overlook, to, to stamp out, to atone for, to substitute on behalf of her and his, that is the individual sin. The, the immaterial man will live, and you know you need righteousness. Paul is saying, yes, I know. And that righteousness is alien to you, and it cannot be achieved by you. Regardless of birthright or human achievement. So what must we do? These are my last couple of moments with you. I want you to see quite simply a surface scratch of the logic of verse 16. And then we'll be concluded. Because he's already laid out, as I said for you, a covenantal privilege for the Jews. Indeed, he acknowledges. But you see the twist? The twist is he doesn't say you have covenantal privileges. And I get it why you would be thinking this way. And then the retort could be, well, exactly, we have our covenantal privileges, so we don't need to listen to you. But did you see the twist? He said, no, 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 no. We are Jews by birth. In other words, Paul's testimony being here in verse 16, as a fellow Jew, I needed to be justified though possessing covenantal privilege, I needed internal righteousness. Just as the Gentiles do. Just as you do. Follow with me the conclusion of our time through the logic of the text. Notice very carefully, with three questions, we can look at the text just briefly for our last moment. Verse 16, notice what he says, yet... So look at, it says, we ourselves are Jews by birth. And they're like, yes, okay, so you get it. And in verse 16, he says, yet. No, 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 don't say yet. We're Jews by birth. No, 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 we are. Yes, we ourselves are Jews by birth. Yet, we know something. We know something other than just our Jewishness. We know something of the immaterial self. So the question is this, we are Jews, Paul says, Yet, what have we done? The answer is verse 16. We have believed in Christ Jesus. Look at the argument. Just skip down a couple of statements. We ourselves are Jews by birth, yet we know that something is waning. So, drop down a couple of phrases, we also have believed in Christ Jesus. The question that would naturally be asked by anyone would say, 
But for what purpose, Paul says, did we, that is Jews, believe in him? For what purpose? Paul says in verse 16, in order that we may be justified by faith in Christ. But you ask finally, why have you pursued Christ through faith apart from works? Why? The answer is because we, fellow Jews, know that not only no Jewish individual, but no individual at all is justified by the works of the law, but is only justified through faith that terminates on Christ. Let me read the text in conclusion, and you can see how he weaves his argument. Verse 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth. And contrastly, we're not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Then how? Through faith in Jesus Christ. So what have you done as a Jewish individual even with covenantal privilege? Knowing this, what have you done? We have believed in Christ Jesus. For what purpose have you believed? In order to be justified by the empty vessel of faith. Faith in what? In Christ. In contrast to what? Works of the law. How do you know this? Because we know, as I said, verse 16, by works of the law, no one will be justified. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will help us to understand the gospel. That we'll understand the announcement that is contained here. That it doesn't belong to the external man to be able to achieve the immaterial righteousness needed. No matter our birthright, no matter our mind, no matter our contributions to society, no matter our weaknesses, no matter our strengths, all things considered, our external man cannot achieve. So God, help us to know that. And for those of us that know it in the sense of we've belonged to you and to the church for a season, uh, quite a long season of time, help us to remember it again. It is given over to us to deny it regularly in our behavior. Help us to remember it. Help us to look upon our fellow brothers and sisters with the right humble mindset that no one here gained it. How could we boast over what we've received? So Lord, bring harmony in the gospel. Thank you for such a witness of harmony through this table that we are about to receive of. In Christ Jesus' name I pray, amen.